today, but also our listeners on KFUO, 8.50 a.m., and worldwide, kfuo.org. Today, we're going to continue our tradition of looking at the Scripture lessons that will be assigned for next Sunday in our church. Now, I have to add a caveat here. I think as Pastor Smith indicated last week, we have switched the Scripture readings for this Sunday and next Sunday. And that's uh, simply because we have a special choral musical selection that goes along with the gospel lesson that we're going to look at, Matthew 25, the parable of the wise and foolish virgins. So this is just to explain to people listening on KFUO the lessons that we are going to be looking at today. Unusually for this class, you're going to be hearing today in your churches but we here at St. Paul's will be hearing them next Sunday. So just a little explanation right up front. Let's begin then with a word of prayer. Lord God, Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are a loving and compassionate God who has sent your only begotten Son into the flesh to reconcile us to you once again, not counting our sins against us. And we thank you for the assurance that as we gather here, we do so with the knowledge of sins forgiven and everlasting life. We pray your bestowal of the Holy Spirit upon us here as we continue in the study of your word. May the Spirit guide us into your truth, and may all that we discuss and teach here be pleasing in your sight and serve to your glory. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. For those here in the gymnasium, we have uh, sheets uh, with scripture readings and the collect on them. You'll notice uh, not only this Sunday, but in the Sundays to come, as we are approaching on the church year calendar, the end of the church year, and the last Sunday in November uh, here will be the last Sunday on the church year calendar. But you'll notice that as we do that, the readings, the scripture readings, continue to emphasize the second coming of Christ. And in fact, uh, we were kind of joking as pastors that Sunday after Sunday, this theme comes through as we approach the end of the church year. And frankly, the challenge for pastors is finding something else to preach on. Uh, so you're not repeating yourself Sunday after Sunday. And uh, we'll see that again with our scripture lessons here uh, this morning. Uh, as we take a look, let's, as I typically do, let's take a look at the collect for the day. That's that prayer that comes immediately following the confession and absolution, comes right before the scripture readings, and as the name implies, it collects, you might say, the main thoughts, the main themes for the day. So on your sheets there, the collect, Lord God, Heavenly Father, Send forth your son to lead home his bride, the church, that with all the company of the redeemed we may finally enter into his eternal wedding feast. Through the same Jesus Christ our Lord, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Now, that's a very nice sounding prayer. Let's go back and see what are we actually asking God to do when we pray this collect. Send forth your son to lead home his bride, the church. 
So what are we actually asking God to do here? What do you think? Send, send his son. He's already done that once. We're asking for him to do it the second time. In other words, send your son uh, that second time. In other words, send him to lead us to what is the, um, the eternal wedding feast at the end that we're asking him to lead us to? Heaven. That is heaven. Correct. So I don't know if we fully grasp this. What we are asking God to do here in this collect is to bring about the final culmination of all things, to bring to full fruition that which he has promised. When he said to his disciples, I go to prepare a place for you, and if I go and prepare a place for you, I will return and take you to be with me, that where I am, there you may be also. Or any of the other promises about the second coming of Christ and taking his bride, the church, onto heaven. And as I say, as the church year calendar draws to a close, so we also see the readings Sunday after Sunday, kind of be listening for this, are emphasizing the same thing, the final culmination, the ending of all things, okay? And of course, we're going to look at the gospel lesson in Matthew chapter 25, which is the parable of the wise and foolish virgins, and they are going into a wedding feast, a wedding celebration, and kind of a tip-off that, that that's going to be heaven that we're going to be talking about there. So the collect, again, points us in the direction that we are going to be going with the readings for today. And very nicely today, all three of the readings line up with this same theme. They don't always do that. The epistle lesson doesn't always kind of line up with this. But all three of our readings today, which again for St. Paul's will be next Sunday, line up in that same direction. Okay? All right. First one, Amos chapter 5. This will be the Old Testament lesson. And Amos is going to be talking about the day of the Lord. The day of the Lord would be the same sort of thing, although uh, there were some days of the Lord in the Old Testament, and we'll talk about that. But it's uh, a day in the future when God is going to dramatically intervene. Okay? So let's read through it first, and then we will go back and take it apart. Verse 18 of Amos 5, Woe to you who desire the day of the Lord. Why would you have the day of the Lord? It is darkness and not light. As if a man fled from a lion and a bear met him, or went into the house and learned, leaned his hand against the wall, and a serpent bit him. Is not the day of the Lord darkness and not light? and gloom with no brightness in it. I hate, I despise your feasts, and I take no delight in your solemn assemblies. Even though you offer me your burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. And the peace offerings of your fattened animals, I will not look upon them. Take away from me the noise of your songs to the melody of your harps, I will not listen. But let justice roll down like waters, and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. 
Now, before we get into taking this apart, does God sound happy or not quite so happy here? Not quite so happy would be an understatement, okay? God's people, uh, Amos was written about, we think about 760 or so, 760 B.C. And Amos was a prophet from the south who was actually sent by God up to the north in the uh, northern kingdom, and uh, which would include the... Uh, later Samaria, of course, and he has a message for God's people. God's people at this time, around 760-ish, um, are thinking that all is fine. Everything is just fine between us and God. And yet we pick up from what God says, not just in these verses, but in other verses, that a lot of different things were happening. There was, of course, idolatry that was taking place. God's people were worshiping not only God, but they were worshiping the false gods of the Canaanites around them as well, all along thinking that everything is just fine. When it comes to worshiping God, they were simply going through the motions. They were just going to, you know, going to the appropriate sacrifices, saying all the right words, but their hearts were not in it. And at the same time, they were worshiping other gods as well. And so what Amos is saying to them here is, why are you looking forward to the day of the Lord? For you, it's not going to be a good one. And see, they, they are complacent. They're thinking everything is fine. Sure, bring on the day of the Lord. It's going to be great for us. And Amos is saying, he has to, you might say, uh, disavow them of that understanding of the day of the Lord. It's going to be a day of judgment for them. Now, this is 760 B.C. We know that God is going to send the Assyrians 722 B.C. And after that, the northern kingdom, frankly, won't even be heard much from again. Then, 586 B.C., God is going to send the Babylonians this time. And the south is going to be judged and taken away. 70 A.D., the Romans come into Jerusalem and for the final time flatten the temple and uh, destroy Jerusalem. And God's people here were living in a false sense of complacency, thinking that, again, if they just went through the motions, that God was going to be pleased with them. Okay? Uh, anything to be said there for us? Yes, right? That, that there is a danger that we slip into a sort of just going through the motions kind of relationship with God. And that, of course, is not what God wants or desires. Now, let's go through this and kind of take it apart with that as sort of the context here, okay? So he says there, uh, starting at verse 18, Woe to you who desire the day of the Lord. Why would you have the day of the Lord? In other words, you who want it, you're saying you desire it, Woe to you when that day comes. Again, it's not going to be good. It is darkness and not light. So in other words, you know, again, the idea of it being 
uh, a terrible day, a frightening day for them. Now, verses 19 and 20, what do we make of this? So he's talking about that day of the Lord. As if a man fled from a lion and a bear met him, or went into the house and leaned his hand up against the wall and a serpent bit him. So what's the idea here? You, get, you, 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 you think you're safe, right? You get away from the lion, but then what happens? You run up against a bear, right? As bad, if not worse. You're in a house, so you think you're safe. And you lean up against the wall, and what happens? You're bit by a serpent, right? Uh, or a scorpion, it could be translated. Um, and so the idea here, you know, again, for God's people, you think you're safe. You think you escaped. Uh-uh. It's a false sense of security. Okay? That you're complacent thinking that you've escaped and you're going to run right into the judgment of God. Okay? So that's that, that's that kind of thing. They thought they were safe, they thought they were secure, and they weren't at all. Okay? Um, verse 20. Is not the day of the, Lord, day of the Lord darkness and not light and gloom with no brightness in it? It's a rhetorical question, but the answer is for them is going to be yes. It's going to be a day of darkness and gloom for them. Even though they're under the false impression, it's going to be a day of light and great feasts. Now, notice verses 21 through 23, here, God is speaking in the first person. I is used here. And the prophet certainly is speaking this, but the prophet is speaking it, notice, in the first person, directly from God. I hate, I despise your feasts, and I take no delight in your solemn assemblies. Um, when you stop and think about that, that should send, their, uh, send them shaking, right? God is saying, why, why would God say that? Why would he say, I hate, I despise your feasts? Why would he say that to them, do you think? What's it? Yeah, okay. Uh, they're, they're, uh, they're worshiping idols in the same, uh, same way that they're worshiping God. But again, their worship of God is not from what? From the heart. They're just going through the motions, you know? Just show up at the right time, you know, and uh, uh, turn to the right uh, place in the hymnal and just uh, go through it, uh, whether, whether your heart is in it or not. And, uh, of course, their heart was not in it, because at the same time, as was pointed out, they're also going off and worshiping the false gods to hedge their bets. And God is saying... You know, in effect, God is saying here, don't even bother. You know, don't even bother with it anymore. Uh, I hate, I hate, I just, those are some of the strongest words from God to his people in all the Old Testament right there. I hate, I despise your feasts. I take no delight in your solemn assemblies. Verse 22, even though you offer me burnt offerings and grain offerings, notice, I will not accept them. So in other words, you can burn all the animals you want, you can offer as much grain as you want, I'm not going to accept it. Okay? Uh, the peace offerings, I will not even look upon them. Look at verse 23. There's a derogatory word in there. 
take away from me the noise of your songs. You know, your, your music, as beautiful as you think it is, just a bunch of noise to me. Take it away. I don't even want to hear it. And then uh, the melody of your harps, I will not listen to. And then finally, in verse 23, uh, or, I'm sorry, 24, is the desired action. This is what God would desire from his people. But let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. That word for justice, we uh, bring probably too much American baggage to it in terms of its understanding. We always want to connect it with the judicial system. But what's talked about here is God-pleasing conduct or just conduct toward our neighbor, which of course begins with a re right relationship with God. So, you know, you might say, let um, uh, righteousness uh, toward neighbor roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. And, of course, first, our righteousness, there is that righteousness between us and God, which God gives to us as a perfectly free gift. And then that shows itself in acts of right acts, we might say, right living uh, toward our neighbor. It's the old love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and mind and love your neighbor as yourself. And God, of course, again, has taken care of that righteousness in his sight, sending the perfectly righteous one to be uh, our substitute, you might say, on the cross, to endure all of God's wrath that should rightly be directed against us because of our sin and has pronounced us righteous. We just uh, celebrated the 500th anniversary of the Reformation. If there's nothing else we carry away from that, it's, again, that God, by his grace, through faith in Jesus Christ, pronounces us to be righteous in his sight. And then, with that taken care of, we live in righteousness with one another. And you can imagine, just by what is spoken here, that's not what was happening. Uh, in God's people were taking advantage of one another. They saw one another not as brothers and sisters in the sight of God, but rather as people to be exploited. God's people were uh, in the marketplace. There's other spots we could look at, even in Amos, uh, talking about the uh, unequal balances in the marketplace. When you come and are going to buy grain, that the scales are tipped, always, of course, uh, in to favor the merchant. And so, and that's just one, one example. But they are exploiting one another, taking advantage of one another. It's all turned in on themselves. And God says, finally, that's enough. I've had enough. Don't even bother coming and, and doing your worship. I'm not going to accept your offerings. Your music is just a bunch of noise to me. And, and so just don't even bother. And so, again, this great day of the Lord is coming, and God's people back at that time were falsely thinking it was going to be a great day for them, but it was not to be a great day for them. Now, we've got to be careful here. God will always, when he brings about that judgment, remember, he always, it seems, preserves a faithful remnant of his people. The majority of them would undergo this judgment. Well, all of them would undergo the judgment. 
But out of that, he always seems to bring a small, faithful remnant of his people through whom he will continue to bring about his promised Savior of the world. And uh, so even in 722 B.C., after the northern kingdoms are flattened, 586 B.C., after Jerusalem and the south are flattened, and many of the brightest and best are carried off to Babylon uh, and are in exile there, still God brings them back from Babylon. He brings a faithful remnant back from Babylon, and it's through that group that eventually the Savior is born. Okay? So uh, it is not in total a wiping out of his people, but it is a judgment upon his people. Now, let's stop for a moment and say, as God's people today, are we looking forward to the great day of the Lord to come? Yes. Okay. Uh, is there anything that we have to fear on that day? No. <laughs> there's no, it's kind of a long pause there. No, there's, why do we have nothing to fear on that day? Because, because of us? Because of something we've done? Good things we've done? In fact, if we're relying on good things we've done, we better be uh, concerned, right? Because what? Yes, Christ has come. And the same one who will come again has already come. And we have that beautiful picture in Ephesians chapter 5 where Paul talks about Christ having cleansed his church, uh, the bride, where now we are without spot or blemish or wrinkle or any such thing, prepared beautifully as a bride adorned for her husband. And he will be the bridegroom coming back on the last day. We have nothing to fear on that day. I've, uh, I've joked from time to time, though, <clears throat> you know, we don't know when that day is going to come, of course. Uh, scripture repeatedly refers to it as coming as a thief in the night, or Jesus, it'll come at an hour you do not expect. So I've often joked that, suppose we knew the day, okay? Let's say it was uh, July 1, 2018. Would there be some people, Christians, who would say, oh, gee, couldn't we wait just a little bit longer? I've been plan we've been planning that wedding for so long now. Uh, couldn't, couldn't he wait just, you know, come on the 15th, not the 1st? And, um, and, and so we do look forward to that day. But uh, I think there's good reason, and we'll talk about it a little bit more when we get to the gospel lesson in Matthew 25. There's good reason that we do not know the exact hour, the exact time. The point is we live every day as if it might be the day the Lord returns, right? And not in fear at all but looking forward to it. And so uh, that's in contrast to the message that Amos has, of course, for the people of the Old Testament. And see, even, even Amos's message here, God's message through Amos, is still trying to get the people to repent. That's the ultimate goal, to repent and return to him. Uh, this is not what God wants to do. Uh, this is his, sometimes we call this his secondary will, or his alien work is that of judgment and, and, and uh, righteous uh, judgment upon his, even his own people. So again, it's a plea for them to repent and to return home to him. All right? Now, just a second um, uh, just on this. This whole darkness, 
Can you remember a, uh, we might say, the great day of the Lord finally where there was darkness on the face of the earth? I'm almost giving it away here. On the cross, right? From the sixth hour to the ninth hour, there was darkness upon the face of the earth, right? And when you think about it, that was God's ultimate day of the Lord. That was his ultimate day of judgment upon sin and evil. The only thing is, the people didn't have to bear it, did they? He sent one who bore it in our place. Again, taking every ounce of his wrath and actually abandoning his own son on the cross so that his son would cry out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It was a day of great darkness uh, in a very literal, physical way, as there was darkness. And uh, we won't look at it now, but that's recorded in, in uh, Mark 15, uh, verse 33. Now, on the other hand, uh, when we look forward to a, a beautiful, what, what, what's going to be on the other side of the day of the Lord... If you would just keep your fingers, uh, or that's right, you've got sheets here anyway, people in front of us. But if you have a Bible, turn to Revelation chapter 21, just real quickly. Revelation 21. And we're going to look at verses 23 through 25 and contrast the darkness that comes upon evil when judgment comes with the light now that we will have in the eternal kingdom in heaven. So that's Revelation 21, verses 23 through 25. Okay? And the city, that would be the new Jerusalem, has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of, the, glory of God gives it light, and its lamp is the Lamb. Who is the Lamb? Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. By its light will the nations walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. And its gates will never be shut by day, and there will be no night there. Uh, the gates not being shut is simply a, a sign of the ultimate safety. Uh, you never have to shut the gates. There's no fear of any attack. There, you're in complete safety and security there, okay? Uh, so its gates will never be shut by day, and there will be no night there. Uh, they will bring into it the glory and honor of the nations, okay? So in great contrast to the darkness that we have on the day of the Lord in, the, in, in, the, in those Old Testament times, uh, we have, and ultimately also on the cross, as God... Uh, takes out the, the ultimate uh, punishment upon sin, upon his own son in the darkness there. We have light now. And watch how John, not just here in Revelation, but in his gospel and in 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, that's a common contrast that John has for us between the darkness and the light, okay? And even referring to Christ and ultimately to us also as the light of the world, okay? All right. I'll stop there. Any uh, questions, comments, statements? Jim? Uh, so when Amos, when God is talking about the day of the mm -hmm. end days, is he talking about our end days? Yeah. Or is he talking about the Babylonians coming in and wiping them out? The answer to that is yes. 
<laughs> the question was, when, and this is, a great, this is a great point. When Amos is talking about the day of the Lord, which day of the Lord is he talking about? And this is one of those occasions in the scriptures where we have, you might say, multiple fulfillments of this. Most immediately, he's talking, of course, to the northern kingdom about 722. And for all listening in the southern kingdom, 586. Uh, there is again a day of the Lord coming with Christ on the cross, ultimate release. And there is finally that, that last day of the Lord when he returns to judge between the living and the dead. Okay? So that's a great question. We see this with a bunch of things. Uh, you know, the, the Old Testament prophets will prophesy in the Old Testament, and there's both an immediate fulfillment then at that time and then an ultimate fulfillment. Many times the ultimate fulfillment is in Christ himself as the ultimate fulfillment. Okay? So that's a great question. Yes? Scott? Yes, that's a great point. The, the idea or the absence of faith here or a trusting relationship, a walking with uh, God is what he wanted here. And we see the same thing today. People outside of that faith uh, and, and relationship with God through Christ think that, again, commonly think that if I just do enough good things, if I just go through the motions of doing those things, God is going to somehow be pleased with me, again, apart from that faith. And again, we know from Scripture, without faith, it is impossible to please God, right? That's a, that's a key verse. So yes, God does not want us just uh, mindlessly going through the motions. He wants a relationship of the heart with us. And that's what he brings to us in the faith that he gives to us. And again, we're not to think that somehow we just check out and go through the motions and God is pleased with that. Lisa, do you have to? Yes. Right. No, I... Yeah, I, I, uh, yeah, boy, there's a lot there. Uh, correct. We think about our reaction on that day. First of all, we spoke of it being one of great joy. But then right here and now, when we stop and think of either friends we may have or, or even relatives we may have who are living outside of that relationship with Christ, and it obviously is not going to be a day of great joy and celebration. Uh, just look at the... Uh, the gospel lesson the way it ends today. You know, this is one of those Sundays where we're reading the gospel lesson and Jesus talks about there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth, and that's where the lesson stops. And then we as pastors say, this is the gospel of the Lord, right? <laughs> it's kind of a, almost a, a direct reverse. And, yeah, that question about will we see them being cast into the lake of burning fire or where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth, we don't see any spot in Scripture, at least, that gives that description of us seeing them. Uh, I sincerely hope not. Um, that, that is obviously not going to be a happy time.
Um, so, if yes, yes, all the more, all the more, hopefully, encourages us to be with both our lives that we live day in day out, and as we have opportunity uh, in, in, to give verbal witness, and certainly always praying uh, uh, for those who are outside of that kind of relationship with God through Christ. Yeah. In fact, when you think about it, uh, you know, if we believe the statistics, about two-thirds of the world's population right now, alive on the face of the earth, is outside of that relationship with him through Christ. Okay? All right. Well, that's not a happy point either. Uh, any other comments or questions before we move on? All right. The epistle lesson is 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, uh, starting with verse 13. And if you attend a funeral, at least I'll speak here at St. Paul's, um, and you go to the graveside, uh, someplace you're going to hear this read, I'll just guarantee you. I just uh, uh, conducted a funeral yesterday, and I know that I shared this section with the family uh, privately before uh, the public viewing on, on Friday and read it again at the graveside. It is one of the, uh, to me, most comforting sections of scripture that we have. And we're just so glad. This is, First Thessalonians, we think, is one of the earliest epistles in the entire New Testament. In fact, it may be the first uh, that Paul wrote. We think it was written about 51 or so AD. And the Christians, you know, Christ said he's going to return the expectation was that Christ is going to return. Well, gee, uh, you know, it's been almost 20 years now. Where is he? They're thinking. They're wondering in Thessalonica. And even weighing heavier upon their hearts was the question, what about our friends and our loved ones who have died before Christ has come back now? You know, are they going to be able to share with all of the good things that are going to happen on the day when Christ returns? Or are they somehow out of it, not going to be able to do that? And so this is what Paul is addressing in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. What exactly is the situation for those who have already died and gone to be with the Lord? Well, of course, the same thing he says about those who died in those roughly 20 years after Christ's ascension still applies to those who have died ever since that point. Died in Christ, I obviously uh, should add, but died, uh, fell asleep in the Lord. And so this is why this is such a comforting section for us. Let's read it through first, the whole thing, and then we'll go back and take it apart. But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. 
Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. Isn't that a beautiful section? Let's go back now and take this apart. Notice there, Paul is saying to them, we don't want you to be uninformed. We don't want you to be without knowledge about this. Because, frankly, they were at that point, and so were, was everybody else, uh, in terms of what about those people who have died. Um, and notice he, he uses the phrase brothers there. It's a term of affection that he's addressing them. Now, when he's referring to those who are asleep, is he referring to those who fell asleep in the late service uh, on Sunday morning? No, obviously not. The Bible uses that as a beautiful way, uh, repeatedly, to refer to those who have died in Christ, to those who are asleep. It's a beautiful uh, uh, comparison. Uh, we don't want to take that too far, though. Uh, there are those who have wandered into uh, a teaching called soul sleep uh, that, that we don't um, agree with. We believe that when a person dies, the soul goes where? Be with the Lord, you know. Paul says, my desire is to depart and be asleep for a long time. No, to be with the Lord, he says in Philippians 1, which is better by far, right? So with the Lord, and then body obviously remains here. And then on this day, the very day that Paul is talking about and describing to him here, what's going to happen? So he says, we don't want you to be uninformed about them or grieve as others do who have no hope. They have no, these others have no hope. Why? Because they lack what? Faith in Jesus Christ. Uh, that's the only basis for hope that we have, okay? We don't want you to grieve when someone dies, when someone is lost, as those who have no hope. Now, do Christians grieve at the death of a friend or family member? Certainly we do. Uh, I always tell people, you know, sometimes there's, mis, there's this misconception that people think at a funeral home, for example, I don't want to let people see me crying because I don't want them to think, what, I don't believe in Jesus or I don't have faith. Oh, no. Uh, there is a missing that person that, you know, death has taken from us. And, of course, we miss them. They are gone from us for a while. But we, on the other hand, don't grieve, as Paul says, as those who have no hope. We do have the sure and certain hope of Jesus Christ. Now, going on, uh, when Christ comes back that day, who's he going to bring with him? All those who have fallen asleep or died, right. And notice it doesn't say just some of them. It's going to bring some representatives along. All of them who have fallen asleep, souls of those who have fallen asleep, he is going to bring back with you, with, with him. And notice there, verse 15, Paul is saying this, we declare to you by a word from the Lord. We think this was a special revelation that Paul received from the Lord, this, this stuff right here that we're talking about. In other words, it's not that the disciples had a little caucus and said, hey, uh, let, let's say this. No, this is a revelation, a word from the Lord. Now notice here, Paul is 
kind of thinking, we who are alive, or those who are alive, uh, who's going to go first on that last day? We who are alive or those who are coming back? He says, we who are, who are alive will what? Will not precede those. So if he comes while we're still, uh, let's say he comes in five minutes, we step back and they go first. Okay? We will not precede those who have fallen asleep. Verse 16, we don't know if this is just three ways of describing the same kind of audible signal or if it's three separate signal, uh, three separate uh, commands or audible signals. Uh, I think most would say this is three separate audible signals here. We've got a cry of command, the voice of an archangel, and the sound of the trumpet of God. And uh, you know how in West County, at least, whenever there's a tornado warning, those, they've got those uh, storm sirens that go off. We've got one uh, not too far from us, uh, from the church here. And then you hear the guy's voice on there. And of course, if you're inside, you can hardly hear uh, what he's saying, what the problem is. You gotta run outside to hear it. Of course, you don't wanna run outside if there's a tornado coming. But anyway, on that day, there will be no problem uh, understanding what is happening. Uh, the voice of the archangel, the trumpet call of God. In other words, there will be no wondering what's going on. We don't have to turn on channel five and look at the weather map. Uh, you know, it, it's, it's gonna be very, very evident to all, okay? And notice there, um, verse, uh, the dead in Christ will rise first, okay? Their bodies, in other words, rising first joined with their souls. And again, glorified bodies, no longer bearing the impact of sin. Notice there, we who are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. It's kind of interesting that he talks about meeting them in the air. In New Testament times, there was this belief that the air above us was the realm of the demons and the evil spirits. And God says, uh, here, we're going to meet them and we're going to meet the Lord in the air. In other words, the, the idea is here, we're taking over their space. They're done, right? We're meeting right, right where uh, the common belief was they were. Now, we don't have that today, of course, but that imagery is there. In other words, we're taken over at this point, okay? Then um, notice there, so we, we will always be with the Lord, encourage one another with, those, with these words. I just want to take a moment in uh, verse 17. You see that word, caught up with them in the air? Now that in Latin, if I say the Latin word, you're going to hear a word that uh, we'll talk about for just a second. The Latin translation for that caught up is raptore. From where? Many people get the word, uh, the, uh, whole, there's a whole theology that's developed called the rapture, right. And for those of you that are un, uh, un, uh, not familiar with this, uh, there is amongst some called premillennialists, and I'll only get into this for a couple of minutes, we could spend a week or more on this, but there is, they will take Revelation 20 verses 1 through 3, and they, the belief is that Right before Christ comes to set up an earthly kingdom, there is going to be a rapture, a secret rapture that's going to take place of Christians. 
And in fact, you may have seen a bumper sticker on a car. I don't see them as much anymore, but in case of rapture, this car will be unoccupied, right? The idea of meaning that I'm a Christian, I'll be caught up in the rapture, right? And, uh, and so they go to Revelation 20, 20, verses 1 through 3, and they say it talks about Christ reigning during a thousand-year reign. And so they take that number literalistically and say that Christ is going to set up an earthly kingdom here and reign for a thousand years on this earth, during which time unbelievers will have the opportunity to repent of their sin, turn to Christ, and be saved. Uh, now, number one, we would say that that number in Revelation, that a thousand years, is not to be taken literalistically, no more than 100, only 144,000 people are going to be saved in another spot in Revelation. Rather, the number 10 is a number of completeness, and a thousand is 10 times 10 times 10, or it's 10 cubed. So we say the entire length of time... God's completed time, he is reigning. And we would say that that millennium actually began with Christ's uh, death and resurrection. That he, we are living right now in that time period. And when it is finally complete, when it is full, when it's according to God's time, it will come to an end. Okay? Now, based on this passage, uh, I would just say that we see no reason to connect this to some sort of a other coming of Christ. We feel that, first of all, it doesn't sound like there's anything secret here at all, does there? You've got the, the voice of the archangel, the sound of the trumpet call of God. It doesn't sound very secretive to me, right? And so we, we just see no need... Uh, to, to take this in any other way than these verses are talking about the second coming of Christ. That we will be, he'll bring with him all who have gone before us and we will be caught up with them uh, to meet the Lord in the air. Okay? So again, two things. We, we just don't see this describing anything different uh, than the second coming of Christ. There's no indication here that we're talking about some other event. And, and frankly, we don't see that in any other place in Scripture. And secondly, it sure doesn't seem like a secret thing to us at all. Okay? So I just wanted to touch on that because it, it almost be remiss of me not to if we go past verse 17 and not mention the rapture. Okay? All right. Any other questions? We've got to get to the gospel lesson here, which is the main thing for next week. But any questions, comments on, just on this epistle lesson? Don? Yes. Yeah, uh, the, the question was, the, uh, those who have fallen asleep in verses 14 and 17, do we think it's talking about just believers or unbelievers or both? In this case, Christ bringing with him, we would think, are the believers on the last day. However, that's not to say that the unbelievers are not going to be raised as well on that day, that we will all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. But in this section, the intent is to bring comfort to Christians who are, again, mourning or wondering about their, their lost loved ones, those who have fallen asleep. And the idea here is Christ will bring with him those who have fallen asleep in him. Uh, but again, we all will appear before the judgment seat of Christ.
Okay? The unbelievers will be raised as well. All right? All right, let's go on to the gospel lesson. This is the, um, the parable of the wise and foolish virgins. And for time reasons, we'll, we won't read it through the whole way first. Let's just go through this and talk about it. Uh, so then the kingdom of heaven will be like ten virgins. Now, this is the same word in Greek. It's parthenos is the same word that is, is used to describe the Virgin Mary. Okay, It uh, is uh, used here as well. Who took their lamps. So there are ten of them, took their lamps, and went out to meet the bridegroom. Now, we don't know a lot about the wedding customs in Bible times, but I remember hearing that what would happen at times is that there would be a the, the marriage ceremony that would take place. And then many times in these small towns, there would be a parade through the streets, uh, the bride and the groom and the party, and everybody would be called to join in. Okay, And he didn't always know how long it was going to take for the bride and the bridegroom to get there. So if you're standing outside uh, waiting for the celebration to begin, you didn't exactly know when they were going to come. But then when they came, everybody went in, and there was a great celebration. So there are ten of these virgins who are there. Uh, five of them were foolish. Now, when I say the Greek word, you'll know what English word we get from this. Morai is the Greek word from where we get moron. Yes, moron. And uh, foolish is I know something, but I don't act upon it. In other words... If I get up in the morning and I see that it's 20 degrees out and I go out in my gym shorts and a t-shirt, I am foolish, right? And cold, <laughs> too. Uh, but I knew something and I didn't, I, I acted completely, uh, you know, just incredibly inappropriately because of the, I had the knowledge, but I, I didn't respond. Um, and five were wise or prudent, we might say. For when the foolish took their lamps, they took no oil with them. Now, we don't, you know, did they go with empty lamps or did they not just have extra oil? They took no oil with them. They may have had some oil in their lamps, didn't take any extra. But the wise took flasks of oil with their lamps. As the bridegroom was delayed, they all became drowsy and slept. So see the... The thing's taking a longer time. The, the party's taking a longer time to get there than they thought. So notice they all fall asleep. The foolish ones and the wise ones, they all fall asleep. Okay? And then, um, uh, let's see. Then, verse 4, but I'm, I'm sorry, 6. Uh, but at midnight there was a cry, Here is the bridegroom. Come out to meet him. Then all those virgins rose and trimmed their lamps. The wise and the foolish, they all got up and trimmed their lamps. And the foolish said to the wise, give us some of your oil, for our lamps are going out. But the wise answered, saying, since there will be not enough for us and for you, go rather to the dealers and buy for yourselves. Now, uh, we're not going to get into, uh, you know, what is the oil in the lamp there's a danger when you start going too much into the details. You'll read some where say, oh, oil is their faith, and some had it and some didn't. 
the idea here is be ready. Be prepared at all times for the, for the, uh, for the bridegroom to come. And the other thing is some will say, oh, how unsharing and uncharitable were those wise virgins who didn't share some of their own. But notice there, what would have been the result? It's the strongest possible, in the Greek, it's the strongest possible, there will never be enough. In other words, if we share with you, whose lamps are going to go out? Everybody's lamps are going to go out, see? So it doesn't help any if we share with you also. All right, so they're not so bad as you might think. They're just, it's just the reality. So, uh, notice there, verse 10, And while they, those are the foolish ones, were going to buy, the bridegroom came. And those who were ready went in with him to the marriage feast, and the door was shut. Verse 11, Afterward the other virgins came also, saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. But he answered, Truly I say to you, I do not know you. Watch, therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour. All right. Um, obviously, let's just take this apart. Uh, who is the bridegroom that we're talking about here? Is Christ coming back. And what is, again, the, the big marriage feast that they're going into? Is heaven, right, in an eternal kingdom. The marriage feast of the Lamb in his kingdom, which has no end, Okay. And notice there the idea is being prepared for that day. Now, let's stop and think about it. Are we prepared for that day? What do you think? Yes. Do, let me put it this way. Do we prepare ourselves for that day? No. Who prepares us for that day? Christ himself does, right? We've got to be very careful here because we, I, we, we can easily slip into a sense of, oh, I've got to prepare myself. I've got to be sure I'm ready. We are prepared for that day. We were prepared for that day ever since water was put upon our forehead and we were baptized in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, just as we have happening in the 930 service in the sanctuary today. From that moment on, God prepared us. We don't prepare ourselves. And he does he just do that and then sort of say, well, go out there and fend for yourselves? No. He continues to keep us in a state of readiness, doesn't he? With his word, with his supper, we are in a state of readiness. We are prepared, okay? And uh, maybe just in terms of our mindset, not losing sight of the fact, again, as the end of the church year wants to remind us, that the bridegroom is coming back, and there will be an incredible celebration that will take place, an unending marriage feast of the Lamb in his kingdom that will take place. And again, we look forward to that day knowing that we are prepared for that day. We have been prepared for that day. And notice, again, on the sad side, the bridegroom says to those who were unprepared, I do not know you. And again, that word for know implies more than I just don't have factual knowledge of you. It's again, I do not have that relationship with you. And so there's nothing else we learn uh, you know, today, both in the Old Testament and the Gospel lesson. It's that relationship of faith and trust in and through Jesus Christ. 
that allows us to look forward to the day of the Lord with optimism and great joy and also makes us ever ready for the day that Christ will return. All right? We didn't look at it, but uh, either you and or folks at home uh, can look at uh, Revelation chapter verses 6 through 9, and there God says uh, through John that blessed are those who are invited to the marriage feast of the Lamb. And we all are. Our place has been reserved for us, and we give thanks to God for that. So there's a positive way to end the class right there. Let's conclude then the benediction. May the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be and abide with you all. Amen. Christ for you anytime, anywhere since 1924. Text the letters KFUO to 41444 to join the legacy with your tax-deductible gift.